Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in Deuteronomy 26, picking up where we left off. And it reads, verse 1, And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first fruit of all the produce of the ground, which you shall bring from your land that the Lord God is giving you, Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket and go to a place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, and you shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. So we now get the bookend of Deuteronomy. We're at the end. Everything from here to chapter 32 is kind of addendum kinds of things that happen afterwards. Um, and these are the final instructions that Moses is giving to the Israelites as his final words to them as what they should do. Chapters 5 through 11 were all the legal obligations for the nation to keep the law, like the worship requirements. And then as we got into chapter 12, we got kind of more the civic law and the individual and the personal law. So as we're wrapping that up, we just got done last chapters with how to do the judging, how to allow for mercy, and then we got the law, the firstborn of the dead, which I think is the coolest thing in the world because it's a law that just doesn't apply anywhere in the Bible except for Jesus. So it's just one of those things at the end of the law that Moses throws on these pieces that don't seem to have an immediate like application, but they do when you look at the Jesus pieces. So, And then he just got done talking about the Amalekites, the Amalekites, Amalekites, basically an image for the sin saying, forget about them, leave them behind. Don't worry about them. And then you get to this. Again, it starts with when you'll come into the land in verse 1. They still have sizable obstacles in front of them. And I know I keep saying that like a broken record. But they still have like Jericho in front of them. They still have I. They still have these major cities with large walls. And God just assumes when you're going to come into the land. Those obstacles throughout Deuteronomy get completely ignored. And they're massive obstacles. So the people of Israel had to be a little thinking Moses was losing it a little bit, I would think. Uh, but as Joshua takes over, he comes up and there's a plan to deal with those obstacles and God takes care of them for them. So they got the Jordan River. There's no bridge going over it. So that, that's a major thing. How do you get 2 million people across a river that doesn't have a bridge built at the point in time? It was a border river. It was meant to be one of those. So they have those pieces but they've got these promises from God that you shall do these things as a command that assumes that God will keep his end of the bargain. So when God keeps that end of the bargain, what are you going to do is what he says to the Israelites. It's interesting. One of the sources said there's over 3,000 promises in the Bible that God makes. About three-fourths of the Bible's promises that God makes have been met already. So God's batting about 100% of all the promises he's made. And then these promises that are made for the end of days that are Jesus' second coming that haven't happened yet. 
So when you look at that kind of idea that God's just batting at a hundred percent, he's, he's, he's absolutely nailing every one of his promises that the Israelites didn't have that track record to go on. They had to go on faith that this God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, 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 um, Moses was going to actually finish and complete the promises that they were made. So this is kind of the first time in history where a whole group of people had to depend on those promises. We have it way better. We have the track record of God meeting all these obligations as he goes through. So in verse two, it says the first produce of the ground. So this is in addition to the first fruits of crops that they were supposed to, in Numbers 18, they're supposed to bring in the first fruits of their crops. This is in addition to that, kind of a special dedication. And the phrase of the ground means the food that's already being produced before they walk into the land. So as they conquest, there's going to be figs on the trees and pomegranates. And um, when they move into the land, there's going to be harvest to have that the Canaanites have planted and whatever. So God's basically saying of that produce that you didn't have anything to do with, you're going to bring in a portion of that and bring it to the temple. So they're going to do that. And then in verse two, it says the place we've talked about place theology. We keep getting every time the place gets mentioned, we get another detail about this place that's so special. Um, and God's keeps setting it up here. We get the idea that this is where his name will abide. Um, and he's going to like make it his place. Verse three, the one who is the priest is interesting here because with the servants of God, and I just like this idea, it's not about who. So the priest isn't even named, even though God could easily name the priest. But it's not about who the priest is. It's about the ministry that's going to happen. And that's interesting. And it sets the Jews apart at some level from other ancient religions where the name is prominent in their texts. And here it's really not about who's the priest at all. So that, I, that thought that the ministry comes first. I was reading Warren Wearsby on the beach this week. And it's fun because... You know, you're reading things on the beach and everything just feels better because you hear the seagulls and all that. And one of the things he said about ministry, and I thought it was great, is that ministers never manufacture ministry. They just distribute it. And this idea that the people of God, as they're working, they don't produce anything in this first few verses. It's stuff God's already made and people are just bringing it in to the nameless priests who are just going to distribute it out to other people or use it in some way, shape or form. And ministry looks a lot like that. If you're being blessed by God, then you have something to give other people. And if you're not being blessed by God, you need to draw closer, get in his word, and do the stuff that he told you to do. Or, and then you have things kind of pouring out of your life that, that makes the ministry happen. And I thought a lot about like craft day with Alyssa. And it's like God's been blessed Alyssa with this creative mind and this ability to do art. And she just loves doing it. And when we were doing craft day with Alyssa, I don't know if you noticed that, but she would constantly stop from her own stuff she was doing and she would just check everybody else's work like this natural art teacher. But for her, it's just, it just comes out of her. She's not manufacturing that. It's something God's already put in her spirit and in her soul. And it just comes out naturally. And in that she ministers to everybody around her and helps us all do crafty stuff. And it's just kind of a cool way. That's how ministry should happen. It's not a burden or something that you have to work at. It's something that just comes out of what God's already put into your heart. So these, and I don't want to get too far off the text here, but just this idea of the one who's the priest in those days is just going to do what he's told to do. And then he gets this script there, right? And it says um, in verse three, this idea of I have come. I declare today 
to the Lord your God that I have come to the country in which the Lord swore. One question with this verse three is who's the I in that verse? So is this every head of household? Is that ev this every person has to come to the temple and bring something? Or is this just the elders or the town leaders that bring something from every town? And there's no real agreement on who the I is there. But I like the idea that it actually says the Lord your God. And I'll come back to that point. Because at the beginning of this whole interaction that people would have with the priests, and this is a one-time deal. This is just when they come into the land. So it's a one-time practice that's going to happen. It's not an annual thing or anything like that. But when they come in, they start by saying, the Lord, your God, to the priest. So here's a gift for your God. And then when we get to the end, I want you to notice the shift that it's no longer your God, it's my God. And there's a transition point that happens here, which is kind of beautiful. So they say they set it before the altar in verse 4. Uh, there's no mention of burning anything, so this is not an offering. It's just a gift to get the Levites set up, I think. And it assumes that it's all God's to start with, and they just hand it over. So then we get words of remembrance and thanks. So they're going to give a creed or a testimony and sum up everything from Genesis through Exodus here in the first few verses. Verse 5, and you shall answer. And the word answer there in the Hebrew means to testify or to give a testimony of something. And say before the Lord your God, my father was a Syrian. Uh, the word there uh, in the Hebrew is Arami, or it comes from the word in Genesis 10.22, there was Aram, and he was a descendant that got this area over by Ur of the Chaldees. So this is, that word Syrian there really means somebody who's Aramaic or, Ar or a descendant of Aram. So my father was a Syrian about to perish. Um, I'll go into that one too. The word perish is avad. It means to be lost or withering or famining. In other words, my ancestor was kind of nothing. That's where I came from. I came from nothing. And then God's going to do some stuff here. But the word about to perish there means my father was a, an Aramite who's not a very prestigious lineage, who is about to perish, somebody who's lost and about to wither away in the wilderness. And then he went down to Egypt and dwelt there. And that's referring to Joseph and about 400 years of Israel and Joseph. Few in number. And there he came, became a great nation, uh, became a nation great, mighty, and populous. That all happens in Exodus 1-7. So <laughs> this is the testimony. They come into the land, they get this new country, and they're coming and admitting that my ancestor had no home. And this is the only nation on the earth that doesn't really have a homeland. So their homeland is to be wandering and lost. The Aramites were just a nomadic people that lived out in the middle of nowhere. So my people came from that. And then we were in Egypt. So that was their homeland, but not Israel's homeland. And now we're a great and powerful nation. And they're admitting this, I come from nothing attitude, which is kind of an interesting thing for a whole people to do that. Verse six, but the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. And then we cried out to the Lord our God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I've brought the first fruits of the land, which the land which you, O Lord, have given me, then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So we get to the end of this and there's this idea that 
people are taking this first fruit, something God gave to them in the first place, and they're just giving back a little bit of it to honor God and saying, God, I didn't earn this. We didn't make it. We were nomadic people about to wither and waste. You made us grow in Israel, Egypt. You pull of us out of our suffering and affliction, the hard bondage. In fact, the mistreatment, affliction, and bondage, I want to go into those real quick. These are all bad things. We know this, right? I'm saying the real obvious on that. But this is how I think the world tends to treat God's people. And it's how the Egyptians treated them when they were in that spot. To mistreat ra'ah is just simply to break somebody down, to take them down a notch. To mistreat is to treat them below where they should be treated. And if all humans have some equal value under God, then you have certain people that treat people as less than. And that's part of what the world likes to do. Afflicted, ana, is to busy themselves humbling, bowing down, or looking down on others, or depressing other people. So when you afflict someone, you bow them down. A lot like, remember the cow they brought to the river, and they bowed down the cow? Um, so there's this idea of treating somebody as less than, mistreated, afflicting someone to depress or lower someone's status, and then laying hard bondage on someone is you know, what it means in the English, cruel labor or service, which is to make someone else serve through slavery, fear, control tactics. But that's kind of what the world does. It lowers the status of others. It treats people horribly. And ultimately, it just wants to make you a slave. And anyone who's new in the workplace knows what that feels like. You just, you become someone else's slave. And you get to work that way. And that's how the world works. So they leave Canaan. They would have likely grown wicked if they stayed in the land of the Canaanites because we know from Canaanite archaeology that there's not a lot of good people left in Canaan. So they become this little people, and it's almost like God put them in Egypt because one of the things that's unique about ancient Egypt is they were totally racist. So it forced the Hebrews, they couldn't intermarry with Egyptians because Egyptians would have nothing to do with them. They couldn't even really become friends with Egyptians because they were completely treated as less than in Egypt and nobody would marry them, talk to them. They were given their own little cities. And it was only when the Pharaoh got upset that they were growing prosperous right underneath his watch that he was going to actually start killing them before he would start integrating them into Egyptian society. So probably the only place on earth where God could have birthed a nation was in this unique culture of Egypt where they were entirely... Um, segregating society. Where the Canaanites, they one of the major problems with the Canaanites, and we're going to see this with Israel, is they start intermarrying with them. And they start bringing the false Canaanite gods into every single home. The Romans were like that too. The Romans integrated quickly. The Greeks integrated quickly. The Assyrians, the Babylonians. Assyrians would take people and move them to different parts of their empire just so that they would assimilate and become Assyrians. So it's a much smarter tactic, but Egypt didn't act that way at all. And it's where God chose to kind of put them. So they come in, they grab this stuff in the new land, they admit to their humble beginnings, and then they become nothing special is kind of, I think, what we get in these verses, is that they admit to God that there's nothing there. And then in verse 6, you get the beautiful word, but, um, but God helped his people to grow despite these circumstances. The more they are afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew, Exodus 1.12. The more Egypt oppressed them, the more strong and mighty they became underneath that oppression. God's people grow when the pressure is on. Historically, that's always the case. 
and then we get that too. So this affliction is a in direct relationship to their growth, and it's part of how they what they remember when they bring this offering in. And additionally, they learned how to work. So one of the other parts of the ancient world is as soon as you got any sort of money or wealth, you stopped working. And God wanted a slightly different kind of society. He wanted people that knew how to work. In fact, he commanded them to work six days a week and then rest for one day of the week. And we always think of that as, oh, the rest is the command. But the work was also part of that command that he wanted his people to work. And there's no status where you stop working in Jewish society. So they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick with all manner of service in the field. This is Exodus 1.14. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. So they became nomadic people, went to Egypt, and they were taught how to do bricklaying. They were taught how to do woodworking. They were taught how to harvest and plant every crop. They were taught how to fish and do fishing. So this is a nation of people that only really had one or two skill sets. Isaac knew how to dig wells and Abraham knew how to keep cattle. Jacob knew how to breed that, not the cattle, but the livestock, the sheep, the goats. So now they become craftsmen and tradesmen by going to Egypt. They learn all their skills. And there's great archaeological connections between early Israel society and Egyptian training. So same kinds of vessels and pots. They drank their beer through straws, just like the Egyptians. They learned all of these skills from the Egyptians and were able to take that with them into the new land. So then they cry out to the Lord, verse 7. And that's the proper response to hardship. You cry out to the Lord. They have no other options. They're exhausted. And it's all they have left. And they start praying to this God that they know that hundreds of years ago, this guy named Abraham, God answered his prayers. So they start praying to that same God too. And the Israel, the Hebrews start to find that God actually will listen to them. So God brings them out in verse 8. And he brought them to this place. In verse 9, where it says, he brought us to this place. Uh, what's interesting there is the word brought is actually to carry, and it's in the imperfect tense. So he, in the past tense, carried them, but he is also still carrying them. And so this admission that they make in verse 9 is really kind of beautiful. You did carry us. You are carrying us. You carry us. You, you'll always carry us. So it's easy to think of ourselves as to where we are as being a place where God's maybe not carrying us. Part of this admission and this unique offering was they admit to God, you're always, you always have us in your hand and you're going to be there. So then they remember God's hand, his arm, his tears, and his wonders. Uh, we have this because God has shaped us and made us. Behold, I've brought the first fruits is that they truly acknowledge God's work that it's his. So in verse 3, it says, the Lord, your God. And in verse 10, it says, to which you, O Lord, have given me. That God becomes the priest's God. And by the end of this statement, they accept this God as their own God. The next two chapters, 26, 27, it's all about ownership of the covenant. So it's this idea that this is the first thing they're going to do when they come into the land is they're going to own that covenant. It's a formal declaration that each head of household, elder, whoever the I is in this passage, it's a declaration that they're making that as for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to admit where we came from. We're going to admit the blessings you've given. We're going to accept that God has given me personally something in verse 10. So when we see God at work, oftentimes the way we come into the kingdom, if we, we can remember before we were believers, we see how God works in other people's lives sometimes. And we watch a community of believers acting and behaving like Christ. And there's something in us that says, 
I want your God to become my God. And that's part of the transition point that happens. So God's asking his people to do that. So when we remember and honor God in our lives, he becomes our God. When we recognize the power of God, at the beginning, that's often somebody else's God. And then we start to ask God to come into our lives and do work. So God's work here is to open that channel of conversation and to talk directly to God like he does in verse 10. And then the reaction in verse 10 and 11 is to worship and to rejoice. That's the end result of serving God and making this initial connection with God. Verse 10, then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So we come to God, acknowledge who he is, give him or acknowledge the blessings that he's put in our hands. Again, this isn't their labor that produced this. So they didn't do anything. There was no works involved. They just grab a basket of grapes from the vineyard they just claimed and they bring it down and give it to God. But it's all God's work. He's done everything for this sacrifice or, or this gift. So we bring it down and then you get this freedom of worship. Like that's what God commands his people to do. After the giving of the law, he just wants them to worship. Acknowledge that covenant and be in relationship with it and worship the Lord your God. So we start from nothing to sum it all up. We've added nothing. We call out to God. He gives everything, sustains everything. And all we do is acknowledge that and then we get to rejoice and put joy back on ourselves. God holds nothing back from grateful people. So be grateful for what you're about to get and don't forget God when you come into the land and you get those blessings. Verse 11, so you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you in your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. One of the final commands of the law is actually to rejoice and to take on that joy one more time. And we've talked about rejoice before, but I love this word. So if you weren't here last time we talked about it, to rejoice isn't to come in and be happy. To rejoice is to come in and choose to put joy on, to rejoice. So the assumption here is that they've been working, they're tired, they're wore out, and you then decide, I'm going to be joyful, and you put joyful back, joyfulness back on. Samach is the word in the Hebrew. It's a great word. Choose joy, and you choose to be glad. But in the flesh, there's affliction, oppression, bad stuff, and you got to actually choose to be joyful in the face of this world that we live in. And that's part of what God gives to his people. So to rejoice is something that gets to be a consistent thing. Uh, Leviticus 23:40, he commands his people to grab a bunch of palm branches. Do you remember this? I was thinking of palm trees this week too. And he tells them to grab, and some of them are shaped like little fans. It's beautiful. And he says, he tells him to grab the, brand, the palm branches, wave them around, and quote Leviticus 23:40, you shall rejoice before the Lord. This is that kind of God that thinks it's important that they grab a bunch of branches as a human race. Like, I could never imagine this. Like, this is the weirdest thing in the world. But he wants his people to grab palm branches, dance around, and rejoice in the Lord. And I think that's a pretty good God. That's a good and a holy God that wants that. Deuteronomy 12, 7, the very beginning of the law, if you recall, he told people to eat together and rejoice before the Lord. Very beginning of the law. Then in Deuteronomy 12, 12, again, he's at the beginning of that civic section. He says, you shall as a community rejoice before the Lord. Rejoicing before the Lord has been a common theme all the way through the law in Deuteronomy. Just a point. So hardship that exists in Egypt and exists before Egypt is not a reason for believers to wallow. And when we go through hardship, which is to be expected, 
every reprieve we get from that, which should be at least every once a week on a Sabbath, we're supposed to then rejoy ourselves before we dig into more wallowing and hardship and tough stuff. Um, or like a great line in The Chosen, um, when uh, Peter's wife just says, well, and he says, well, it's going to be tough. And she goes, well, it's always been tough for our people. Did I quote that right or am I paraphrasing too much? It's always been like that for our people. And the Jewish people just come to understand that hardship's just part of life. And you have to just deal with that. Anyways, verse 12. When you finish laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, so this is a different passage because that first offering was just from what they got off the ground. Now in verse 12, we move to a tithe, which is something that comes all the way back from chapter 14. There's this national tithe, but this time Moses puts another twist on the tithe. When you finish laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. So tithe every year is the commandment we got before, but now every third year, you're supposed to take that tithe and share it with needy people. And if you rotate, traditionally the Hebrews would rotate this, so this year is my year, and next year would be Casey's year, and the next year would be Paul's year. So every three years, there's a portion of the tithe from the community just going to the poor people to take care of them. And the idea is that there's always a sufficient provision for food and shelter for people that need food and shelter. Nobody starves to death in Israel, and that's kind of the plan. So it's not surprising that this is almost evaporated by the time Jesus shows up. Because the priesthood likes getting tithe every year from everybody. So you see almost no mention of that third year piece. Then you get Jesus that shows up and says, why aren't we taking care of poor people? Because it was God's law to do that. And then he shows up in the first century and the rabbinical priesthood had just utterly forgotten this little passage here in verse 12. There's sticklers about not working on the Sabbath. But when it comes to this thing where you're supposed to maybe take your tithe and put it in some other places... But this is an interesting principle for us. Uh, it could be easily dismissed, but it takes a lot of intention if every third year we're not giving our money to the church that we go to, we're starting to move that money to other people that we may know of that need that money and those resources. And different people do this different ways. Some people take a third of their tithe and just give it away to people who need it. Some people actually do third year. And some people, I, I'm, I'm afraid to say, a lot of people have never even heard of this. So they're like, wait, what about, I just always give 10% to my church all the time. But this requires God's asking the people to have some thought about where their tithe monies go. And it doesn't necessarily always go to the Levite. Because in the third year, it can go to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow so that they might eat and have food. So if there's not enough food for people in the nation, that's a major problem of people's hearts not giving their money to the right place. So... Not commonly taught today, not a precept we really have put a lot of focus on, but you should know it's there and it's in the law. Okay, and then there's some prayer as we give things and how we should pray. So verse 13, then you shall say before the Lord your God, and we actually get a, a, a scripted prayer that they're supposed to say. I've removed the holy tithe from my house and I've given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, according to all your commandments which you've commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor any of it for the dead. 
And I've obeyed the voice of the Lord my God, and I've done according to all that you've commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 13, when it says, then you shall say, part of what this prayer teaches God's people, I think, it's just my part, God doesn't need our money. And I think that's something important. And if you're at a church where they say God needs your money right now, that's a church that's fallen away from what the Bible teaches a little bit. God doesn't ever need our money because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The world is his. He produces wealth. But what this is about is about the heart of the giver doing it and having the right disposition towards God when we give God money and give God resources. Um, Charity should be, it says, you should do this before the Lord your God in verse 13. In other words, this isn't necessarily done before the priest. This is a prayer they're supposed to speak to God. And this creates the principle in Jewish and Christian tradition that we can pray to God without going through a priest. This is exactly what the disciples pointed to from passages like this, where they could demonstrate that even in the Old Testament, there are points where people are responsible to pray all by themselves. Priests don't do the praying for us. Pastors don't do the praying for us. They can pray for us, but they're not. This is a direct conversation between the Jewish person giving this third year tithe and being accountable to God. So let's look at how that happens. For starters, it's done in private because this is charity giving, right? So they're giving to charity when they do this and it's private. So this is the roots for like Matthew 6, 6, where it says, when you pray, you should do it in a closet. When you've shut the door and you pray to the father in secret and the father sees in secret and shall reward thee openly. So the idea here is that, well, you know, look at the prayer. I've removed the holy tithe from my house. Who knows that besides you and God? Nobody knows if you're tithing accurately. So if you're praying that to God and God sees through you with the eyes of fire from Revelation, then he sees the truth of what you're giving and what you're not giving. If you say, I've given properly to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, according to your commandments, I've kept all your commandments. Who really knows that besides you and God? It's a very private, private prayer. So this generosity that should happen, there's a really phrase in verse 14. I've not eaten any of it. That's funny. When in mourning... So when you mourn something, you're grieving its loss. So when you give your tithe, when you give to God what is already God's, and you are have a hard time letting it go, that's grieving that you're losing the money. But it's not yours to lose in the start with. It never belonged to you in the first place. Especially as you come into the land that God is giving to you. It wasn't yours in the first place. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Let each person give as they purpose in their heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't need the money. It's about the heart of the person giving it. And if you cling on to everything you have and you're hesitant to give your tithe to the church, that's a major problem with your heart and God doesn't want you to have that problem. If it's about provision, he's promised that he'll provide for you. If it's about accumulating money and wealth and power, He's promised that you don't need any of those things. What you need is Christ. So one of the big dangers is that we need money to eat and provide for ourselves and put a roof over our shoulders, but we don't need money for spiritual joy and happiness. And money doesn't provide safety and security like God does. So it provides no safety nets that weren't already there. So you give according to the commandments. You've obeyed. You've done as you've been commanded. God's will is directing all of this. I think that's another principle we can pull out of this prayer. 
We just do what God says. It's not our job to add to that or take away from it, which is a great freedom and a great obligation all at the same time. Because if God's demands aren't actually that heavy, and we'll see that as we go through the blessings and the curses. I've not transgressed your commands. That's not dealing with God or making a deal with God, but it's the context of living an obedient lifestyle. When you tithe and give to God, you're doing it out of a place where you're just following God's commands. You're doing what he said. So you're not giving something to God in order to impress God or get something back from God. There's no exchange here. It's an obligation as a believer. You just do what you're told to do. And you say you've not forgotten them. So we keep God's word present in our memory. We remember what it says. God's people are later going to be asked to read through the book of the law, which is, could be all five of these first books. Every seven years, they're supposed to go through it. And we got through it in three. So it is one of those things where they're supposed to, that obligation to go through the law is something that God's expecting them to do and not forget the law, like it says in this prayer. For, verse 14, uh, I've not taken any or eaten any of God's portion. So God asks for, you know, the mass consensus is that tithe is 10%. That's different in different jobs and vocations because if you're, you know, herding cattle, then the first 10% of your new cattle is a tough thing to count out and figure out. But that's generally the assumed thing is that you don't take any of that for yourself. And then I love verse 15. I've given all this to God and my prayer is, Lord, I've done everything you've said. I've obeyed your commandments. And then the prayer in 15 is not for themselves. It's an unselfish prayer. And we can pray for ourselves. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's examples of it in the Bible. But this example is that we do all this stuff before God to earn the privilege of praying for our nation and for the people around us. And I love that in verse 15. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel. They, God could have said, I want you to pray for yourself. But the instructions here, are, I want you to just pray for the nation that you're in. Pray for your people. It's just such a wonderful kind of thing. Right giving is done with the expectation of blessing. But the Bible doesn't say that you get the blessing personally. That when we give things, there is a promise that God will bless that. And a spiritual blessing, even sometimes a physical blessing. But that blessing can go to your community. It can go to other people in your church. It can go to your nation. But there's no guarantee that that blessing comes directly to you. In fact, your promised trials and hardship as God shapes you into the believer he wants you to be. But you're also promised that you'll see the blessings of God around you and around the people around you. So I think that's just one of those wonderful ideas. So even as remember all of the hardships we've gone through, the point of prayer is to pray unselfishly for other people, at least in this example. So asking for the blessing is my last thought with this beautiful prayer. God commands his people to ask for a blessing. And again, he doesn't need our money in the first part, and he doesn't need us to ask for blessing for him to give blessings, does he? He can give blessings whenever he wants to. But he wants a relationship with us where we actually ask for things and he can give them so we can see his working in the lives of the people around us. It's a wonderful thing to pray that somebody else will get a job and then that week they get a job. It's beautiful. And you just think, wow, God, you didn't have to do that. It's you can pray for these things and ask for them, and then they actually happen. So we obey, we do what commands God commands us to do, and part of what God commands us to do is to ask for things from him and to ask for those blessings. Then when he does it, God gets all the glory, and God doesn't share his glory, and he shouldn't, because in truth, 
he is worthy of praise and worthy of glory. So then you get to this special people, the concluding statement. It's like we're wrapping up the Pentateuch. This day, the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and all your soul. So this is kind of a bookend to Deuteronomy 4.1, the Shema, when it says you should follow the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then we get to the end and we see that kind of bookend. Um, this is a reminder of what God's commanding us people. All these laws we've gone through, you know, don't put rails around a hole when you dig it. Um, be nice to animals. All those kinds of things come back to this idea that we should love the Lord with our heart and our soul. Heart and soul is translated and interestingly for them the heart is the thinking and the conscience that you get and the soul is your will and your actions when they happen so those get translated into heart and soul for us and put into pop music but they mean something very specific in the hebrew and that is both what you feel inside your heart and how you act which is the will or the force that you have in the world your actions so bad people will obey god out of fear of the consequences and that's fine and the nation gets blessed. Good people observe the law because they love God's law. And they love God and they want to do it out of love. So regardless of if Israel has good people and bad people in it, if they're both following the law, God's going to bless the nation. And he doesn't expect every human being in Israel to be a good person. But they should obey the law regardless of the reason for obeying the law. So his, world, his will gets done and his word gets done. And we're supposed to be careful to observe those things. That observe there is the command or the guard thing that we've had before. That idea that you should keep guard duty over this law. You should watch over it. Watch the commandments. And we keep coming back to this idea that you've heard them. Now you should do them. And I just want to read some of the New Testament because this doesn't go away for us as believers. This is really consistent with us today. And James 1.21 is probably the most... Uh, the passage where we hear this a lot, but frankly, the book of James is about that idea that we don't stop doing the things we've heard because doer, words and deeds have to go together and they have to be matched. So James 1.21, therefore, or I'm sorry, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. A lot like the prayer we just did. Praying in meekness, recognizing where we came from, that God's given us everything. And then verse 22, the famous one, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, they're like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For you observe yourself, go away, and you forget what kind of person you were. But he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he's religious, and doesn't bridle his tongue, but de and but deceives his own heart. That your religious, your religion, that one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this: to visit orphans, widows in their trouble, and keep oneself unspotted from the world. A lot like this third-year tithe that they're supposed to give. It's almost like James read the law. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law; he came to fulfill it. He came to correct a religious Levitical tradition that it utterly corrupted the law into being a tool of oppression. And instead of having it oppressed, Jesus reminded people of what the law originally said, to obey the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
So Jesus brought people back to what the book said in the first place. Frankly, every major revival of the church in the last 2,000 years has been some group of people that said, we're just going to go back to what it says. And all the traditions that humans build up, the religion becomes utterly useless in the face of just doing what the Word of God says in the first place. Martin Luther did the same thing. Most of the major denominations started that way. I like the Benedictines and the Jesuits. I think those movements within the Catholic Church were really interesting historical movements. But they all come back to just saying, we're just going to do what the Word of God says, and we're going to stop listening to what humans say. And the Word of God says that we're supposed to be hearers of the Word, remember it, and then do it. So Israel's making two vows here in verse 16. Number one, we shouldn't forget that they're claiming the Lord is their God. The book of Deuteronomy is a legal contract between a king and their people. So when we get to verse 16, the people are making their vow to God because God's already done his part. So this legal contract gets bound, and this is common not just in Jewish literature, but in a lot of ancient literature. This is how the people make their bond to the king. So one, they're vowing that they're claiming the Lord is their God or their king. And then two, they're, they're saying they're going to obey his voice, and that voice is represented in the words written in this book. So those two vows, you're, you're my king, and I'll obey what you say to do. And what kind of servant would claim someone to be their master and then not do what they're told? That's the worst possible situation ever. It's like teachers with disobedient students. Because that's not a good student. So if God tells us, this is how I want you to live, we're supposed to just live that way and do what we're told. And we can show our love by being an obedient and a good servant to the Lord God Almighty. A shame that... <laughs> It's a shame that the law gets such a bad name. And I've mentioned that a lot through Deuteronomy too. Illiterate skeptics say the law is bad. And I think really confused, deceived believers think the law is just this bad, ugly thing. But at the end of the day, the point of the law is to show God that we love him and give back his rightful offering, which is our lives and our service to a king that loves us and provided for us and has and, and is continuing to provide for us. So... Those people that would walk away from that or defy the law, again, you go back to that shame on you, sandal in your face, spit in your eye. How tragic. What a horrible thing. Boo. So the law sets up the will of God, the character of God, and it sets up the word of God. So if those things are actually there and people say, well, is God talking to you? And you say, I don't know. I haven't heard him lightly. Well, how much are you in the word? Well, I'm not reading the word. Well, how can God talk to you if you're not reading his word? Because this is how it does. So when you're in regular daily devotions in the Word of God, the Lord speaks to you through those regular daily devotions. I know some people that like just flop the Bible on the table, open to a random page, and then close their eyes and pick a verse. That is not regular daily devotions. That's not what that is. That's some sort of weird mysticism that you're bringing into the religious faith. But God wants you to be going through his Word and remembering his Word and that means dutifully doing it as you're observing it and keeping guard over it in your life. Regular, faithful stuff. Verse 17. Today you've proclaimed the Lord to be your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments that you will obey his voice. So like Gandalf says to Bilbo, I didn't give you that map and key so you could hold on to the past. I gave it to you so you could move forward. And that's the point of all of this. Walk in his ways and do it. So this is the sum of all wisdom in Ecclesiastes. Last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wise man, goes through all the possible ways you can go in life. 
all the philosophies you can have in life. And then he concludes with this, verse, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. Isn't that what we've covered in Deuteronomy for the last five months? The goal isn't to hear the law in his voice, it's to remember it and walk in that way and to do what he says. Verse 18, wrapping up this chapter. Also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people. So this is what God does in return for fealty. It's a contract. He's going he's gonna to declare you as special people. We don't know what special means quite yet, but it's going to be good. Just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made in praise and name and in honor that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God just as he has spoken. So there's the covenant and now it's struck. We have a covenant that there was an Abrahamic covenant and this is the close of the Mosaic covenant that now we have a deal. God made a deal with Abraham that he would take that individual and make a nation. Mission accomplished. We now have a nation that's accepting God as their king and the king accepts them as his special people and he'll treat them that way. So the covenant struck. They proclaim it out loud. Remember, these are out loud statements that get made. And it's like a wedding vow. So this, the format of Deuteronomy looks a lot like a contract that a, two families would make at the time of a wedding. So at the end of this, it's verse 18 is, I've now proclaimed you to be a special people. It's kind of like at a wedding when we say, when the, when the priest says, I now proclaim you husband and wife. As we get to the end of the contract in Deuteronomy, and it's, I now proclaim you Lord God Almighty and Israel, and you two are connected. And they won't get divorced until Israel starts having problems with, with adultery. So as a bride, the great treat of being a bride is they get to be the first in God's eyes. They get to be at a place of prominence for God. They're a pearl and a precious treasure to God. And they still are today, according to the Bible, that you may be a holy people, to be precious, to be celebrated. If we do the Before the Wrath movie, After Saturate, oh my goodness, this image of the wedding and how the bride gets lifted up on the shoulders of the people and walked around town, that's what God's promising Israel. You're going to be my bride and I'm going to put you up above everybody else. You're going to be first amongst other nations. So it's a great blessing to be set high above, just like that wedding ceremony. God knows the reputation. The portions of that are not only will be high above nations that he has made, but it's going to be in praise. Other nations will be grateful for you and thank you for what you've done. In honor, other nations will honor and respect who you are as a nation and that you may be a holy people to your Lord. The greatest gift, the last one he lists, is that you're actually going to be holy and you're going to live lives that are actually wonderful and respectful. Peter sees the sojourn on earth as really temporary. Our time here is short, but the blessings that we get from our short time here are really long. 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice, not, though now for a little while, if you need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Life here sucks. That in genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See what Peter just did there? 
He took the closing words of Deuteronomy and applied them to a life with Christ as the bride of the firstborn of the dead. And Peter took this image of a marriage contract and wove it right into our Christian language. Whom having not seen you in love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and the full glory receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The inheritance you get through this contract with Jesus is your soul is going to be saved. You'll be a holy people. You'll be made right before God. So if we hear and obey, God promises in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that he's going to bless faithful people. He gives us a path on how to redeem ourselves. He gave the Jews a path on how to do redemption. He opened that up to anybody who wanted to come in and be a stranger in the land. They had a path to redemption. And through Jesus Christ, he offers the same path of redemption. And he sets those images up in the Old Testament. He follows through in the New Testament in praise, in name, in honor, that you may be a holy people. That's God's plan. Then we get some addendum. Or as this contract has been struck, everybody in the country has to like agree to the contract. Remember when Abraham sealed the contract? He did the thing with God where he laid out the sacrifice and he waited and waited and God like played with him and made him wait a little longer. And then he walked through the stuff and God didn't. He just waited on him. And then when Abraham fell asleep, God walked through and accepted the covenant. Like, I can do this without you, Abraham. Well, with this one, we got to have a similar situation where every person in the country is doing it. So you get to what's called the blessings and the curses. I'm already at 48 minutes. Are we good to go another 20 or are we wearing out? Yes, no, maybe. Okay. Deuteronomy 27. Now Moses... Transition. All the way through the first five books of the Bible, it was like Moses was, was gathering texts for Genesis and that he wrote Exodus, Number, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy right up until this verse. Now Moses switches from the first person to the third person. So what happened to Moses? At this point, Joshua probably took over the writing. So this gets me really sad because we've been with Moses a long time now. A long time, and suddenly we're going to have to say goodbye to Moses. But the word now Moses is the transition point where suddenly it moves to the third person and someone else is writing about Moses, um, which is probably Joshua taking over those duties. Joshua was Moses' servant. So they're going to take this contract they just did, and then they're going to write it on stone. So they're going to, they're going to memorialize it. Verse 1, Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of this law. That's a project. When you've crossed over that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord your God of your fathers promised you. So... <laughs> The only thing left in this book is just to put the end. So this is like the epilogue. So this is what you're going to do now that you've made a contract. You're going to do this. Uh, the elders here, again, is one of those contested things. When Moses talks to the elders of Israel in verse 1, many people think this would be that representative team. Remember when his dad said, you can't do this on your own. You've got to get some elders to work with you. So there's this group of 70 elders that kind of helps with the leadership of the country, but they're not the Levites. They come from all the different tribes. So it's like Congress. And then over here is the Levites, which do the worship piece. 
the Levites eventually turn into the Pharisees. The elders eventually turn into like the Sanhedrin. So when we get later on, they become that ruling body. So that's the elders. Joshua 8 is where this actually happens. So if you want to cross-reference, uh, when we get to Joshua 8, they're going to set up a stone. They're going to wash it in lime. And then they're going to write the law on it. So what does it mean to write the law? Some people think it means they just wrote the Ten Commandments. I don't think it means that because of these verses. When it says large stones, I can write the Ten Commandments on a reasonably sized moderate stone. I don't need large stones to write the Ten Commandments. And these are people that used to work in Egypt. They know what large stones are in Egypt. And to make some sort of memorial of large stones, they're thinking huge, right? The second piece is that it says all the words of the law, which I've commanded you today. If you say the judgments and statutes in, in verse 26, 16, if you, the only place that bookends that language is way back in chapter 12, verse 1. So it's possible that all the words of the law go from Deuteronomy 12, verse 1, all the way through Deuteronomy 26 in one giant memorial. So if you go to a roadside stop and they've got that little plaque that has what happened here, kinds of things. This is going to be that kind of a memorial. So if you're going to travel all the way up Mount Gerizim to read the rock and you get there and it's only 10 sentences, that would be really disappointing. But if you get there and it's like a little museum and you can read the entirety of the law, that's going to be fun. When I was a kid, grandma would stop at every single one of those. So if you travel with grandma, she'd stop at every, and I still remember one where I was a teenager and I just lost it because it was the field where they got the trees to put under the tracks for the railroad that came through that part of South Dakota. And I was like, Grandma, why are we stopping here? She's like, because look! And it was this giant field of nothing. And, but to her, it was a memorial of what happened there was what was so important, right? So, and they gotta find something to make a roadside stop, <laughs> apparently. So I think that when they say, put all the words, that it's pretty clear that they're gonna write the words from the law. Some people even think this is like from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Deuteronomy. So it would have been massive. So if that's the case, there would have been this clear idea of presenting the word of God to everybody who gets there. The place where we're going to put it um, is going to be fairly epic. Because if you walk into Jerusalem crossing the Jordan by Jericho, you come into a place called Megiddo, which is this giant fertile valley of stuff. And Mount Gerizim and Ebal are to the north of that, would be these, well, they call them mounts. Like, they're not Colorado mountains, they're Israel mountains. So, but they would have been the highest points that you would see as you walked into the land. And on top of Gerizim would have been this big pile of stones. Like, it would have stood out like a monument. And you would have seen it and walked in. And if any traveler comes in the land, you know what this country is all about because they put it right at their gates. So, it's a really interesting idea. Um, so... If it's carved there in the law, then anybody coming into Israel through this major trade route, which is the route two million people are walking into the land, they would have seen this law and it would have been God's law. It would have been progressive. It would have been people friendly. It had been full of mercy, justice and judgment. There's a, this idea of mercy and hope, the bride, the inheritance. Forget about sin. Remember that God did all these things for you. And then you walk in and you see Israel and it has all of it in one package. So you know the law, you're supposed to you know it, you're supposed to do it, and I'll present the word of God to everybody who comes through your country. Just put it up there and write it all out. 
So get the word of God out to people. Not preaching to people, but sharing it. They get to read for themselves or their grandma gets to read. Because my grandma would have read the entire thing out loud and made us stand there and listen to it. Verse four, therefore it shall be when you've crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today. I'm sorry, it's on Ebal that the stones go. And you shall whitewash them with lime and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall not use an iron tool on them. No iron tools because they did that in Egypt and made very glorious monuments, some of which are still standing today. This monument doesn't get... The humans don't get the glory on this thing. So God often has them not use tools because he doesn't want the workmanship to be what impresses people. What should impress people is what's on the stone, not how it was put together. So verse six, you shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and altar, offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God and you shall offer peace offerings and there and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God and you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Remember burnt offerings, everything gets burnt up. Go back to Leviticus. Peace offerings, part of it gets burnt up but most of it gets eaten by the people. They're supposed to go up here and have a picnic. So it's this place they go up, they hang out by the law and they're gonna have all this food um, there's one path into Israel at this point where all these travels should go. So imagine you're traveling through Israel during the time when they go up to read the law and you see this mass of people up on the hillside with a big white altar in the middle and they're all having a barbecue which you can smell from miles away. I think this is kind of an interesting country we're traveling into, honey. Like look at what these people are doing and if you're a normal human being, you go to where the party's at. So you smell the food and you see all the people and you're like, might as well detour a little bit and see what's going on over there. Um, hopefully you brought your sunscreen because it's a long hike. It says, and I like this passage in verse eight, very plainly. A lot of times in the Hebrew, when we see very, they just double the word. Remember that? We've done that a lot. And they just say the same word twice, which means emphasis. That's not the case here. In the Hebrew, it's yatab ba'ar, which is to declare is the very part, declare something by digging it into a rock, so carving, and then to explain it. So when it says you shall share the words of this law, you shall write very plainly on the stones, it's you shall dig and explain in the stone. You're gonna put my word in stone so people can see it and read it and keep it. The limestone wash, just in case you didn't pick that up, would be like whitewashing the stone. So when you limestone wash it and then carve, the letters would stand out like black letters on a white page of paper, which makes it super easy to read. So think about the principle there. The job of the believers after entering into a covenant with the Lord is to share the word of God and make it super plain and easy to read for anybody coming through the land. So anybody who comes into Israel can see what Israel is all about and it's on those stones super easy to see. And when they whitewash all these big full stones, Think of what that looks like when you come in. It's this big, bright, huge tower. It's like coming into a small town in mid-America and seeing the steeple pop out of the middle of the town. Like that's what this town's all about. That's what this nation's all about. Very plainly. Write the vision, make it on plain tablets, that he may run who reads it. Habakkuk 2.2. They should be able to see this as they're traveling through. They could, be, they could be at a full run and they can see this thing and read it like having big road signs on the side of the road that you can read at 55 miles an hour or more if somebody else is driving. 
Dig the law into the stones. Don't veil God's word. Make it plain. Make it easy to see. Don't hide it. Put it on a hill where everybody can see it. Like a light. Don't put a light under a bushel. Put it out there where everybody can see the light. Here's the word of God and what God says and make it plain for people. So there's two strategies of the enemy if they want to beat up on God's people. One, get them to not read the word of God at all, which is why we started this Bible study. Like that's one great strategy. You want to undermine believers? Just get them to not read the word and not even know what God says. What a shame. And then number two, make it so confusing that only people with a degree can understand what you're saying. You know, write libraries of commentary about the word of God so it's so obfuscated that nobody understands what it actually says. Both of those, I think, are massive tools of the enemy. Get the believers to never read it or be confused or think it's somehow above them intellectually to know what God says. God says, write it very plainly, verse 8. The word of God is not meant to be obscure. It's not meant to be complex. It's not meant to be hard, and it's not meant to be above your head. It's right where you can understand it. It's right where you can read it and see what it says and understand it for yourself. And so we gather together and we read it and we go through it line by line. Really, all I'm doing is slowing down long enough to soak in the sentence, right? Because the sentences do stand for themselves. So peace offering, you shall eat there and rejoice. So this is like a destination vacation spot in Israel, a rest station. And I love that idea. The written word of God should be expressed in action. The eating together is actually part of this whole equation. Verse 7, shall offer the peace offerings and you shall eat there before the Lord your God. So again, we get to the eating principle that part of worshiping God is reading his word and eating together. And it just keeps coming up throughout the Bible. It seems like an odd thing that we don't, that I have to keep repeating myself on that. How important it is to eat together. By the way, the Red Wing people started doing a, lunches after their service because I kept bugging them about that. When do you people eat together? You got a kitchen. So they started doing like where they were eating together. And he said like half the church showed up the first Sunday and they just loved it. And they hung around all afternoon. And I was like, praise the Lord. Good for you. When are you doing your next one? So I don't know if I'd be doing it every week if I were him, but I was so happy that they just decided to eat together. And as a body, they were just blessed by that. And it would just, it just works. And at CCTC this morning, I had some of those fig Newtons and brownies it's just a blessing to just eat together. And, and Lynn had made that egg bake stuff for everybody. It's just a blessing. It's a ministry. Verse 9. I go off on food for a long time. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. God's grace, the gift, they put the word out. Now they've become. It's a relational phenomena. They just became something new. And this is kind of a celebration at the end of Deuteronomy. It's really great. This follows the same pattern as that ancient contract. The kings declared his wishes. The people have agreed to it. The will is known. They're going to do the will of the king. And now the priests and the Levites are responsible for keeping that covenant. They get mentioned. They obey the voice, which, which is in the Hebrew Shema, uh, emphasis on hearing things. And then they observe, which is in the Hebrew, the word Asa, which is an emphasis on action or doing something. So they hear it and they do it. Same principle we keep seeing again and again and again. In fact, I think we see it a total of seven times, but somebody should go and count that for me. 
Um, James 1.22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We just keep getting the theme. So any skill is deepened by reading, and any reading needs action to continue to be deeper. Let me model that. The reading and the doing go together for this reason. If I want to be a better gardener, I can do that the hard way, and I can garden and make mistakes for 20 years and get moderately good at the end of 20 years. Or at the end of my first year of gardening, I can go read a book on gardening and then improve my gardening skills. The purpose of reading is to get better at the action. The purpose of reading is not just to read gardening books forever and ever and ever. In fact, if you do that, I'll flip it. If I just picked up a book on how to mix tar and started reading it, I'd fall asleep unless that was my job. So the point, and I think this is a tough thing when it comes to reading the word, the idea of hearing it and doing it go together because if you don't make it your profession to do the word of God, why would you read it? So you're just reading the Bible because of some sense of obligation, but it doesn't affect your life. Then you just fall asleep while you're reading it every day. It doesn't mean anything. So it's like me reading gardening books if I'm not a gardener. But if I am a gardener, I'm soaking in every word. I'm taking notes. I'm connecting it to what I want to do in my garden the next year. Maybe expanding the garden, mixing the soil. Oh my goodness, there's books on how to get the soil at the right um, consistency and acidity. And I need to start reading about that. All of that reading helps what I'm doing and helps build expertise. And such is the life of the believer. You read it, you do it, and you have a barbecue. So... Now we got to sign the contract. Verse 11. Moses commanded his people on the same day saying, these shall sign on, shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. And when you've crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebel to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So they don't sign the contract with a piece of paper. They're going to sign it with their voices. Um, <laughs> Adam Clark uh, uh, points out that on all hands, it looks like Gerizim as a location uh, has springs, gardens, and orchards. That's the Blessing Mountain. And Mount Ebel is covered with barren rock. So this is Adam Clark's kind of interpretation. The mounts kind of look like a Blessing Mountain and a Curse Mountain. Notice that the law goes on Ebel, the Curse Mountain. That's where they're going to put the law. And the blessing with Gerizim, where they're going to be, is where Abraham first entered the land back in Genesis 12:7. So if you want another cross-reference and something cool, when Abraham came from the Ur of the Chaldees through the wilderness, this is the same trade route he came in on, because geographically it's just where you come into the land. So it's believed that on Gerizim you have Abraham's God's promise to Abraham, and then on Ebel right next to it, you know, it's a little slope in the in the range, and then on Ebel you have the law of the covenant of Moses put right next to it. Which makes you wonder, in the Valley of Megiddo, what goes on the third mountain? Because there's a third mountain over there, too. So it's just one of those kind of places on the earth where you're like, this is really cool that stuff happened here. In fact, um, 2019, uh, the Mount of Gerizim is being considered for, as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Because even though the Jewish people moved to the place of Jerusalem for the temple, the Samaritan people didn't. The Samaritan people still considered Gerizim the location where the blessings were from God. I don't know why they don't like Ebel so much, but this this location is very public. It's very visible. It's the highest point in this area that you would see. Mount Ebel with the curse gets God's law on it. 
So the word's written there. It's right geographically in the middle of Israel. It's about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Um, in 1987, they started to dig up and they found the ruins of what they thought was a, a big tower. But then they noticed the tower was filled in with gravel and bones. And it looked like what would have been an ancient kind of altar on top of Mount Ebal. So they started digging up this altar and it was huge. In fact, the locals called it the hat because as they started to pull the 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 dirt off of this thing, it became this white cap on top of Mount Ebal. So even as they were undoing this excavation, it started to show up. It was really cool. So they dated the clay shards that were dumped in there. They date right around Moses' time, 1200 BC. So this would have been that period of time. Uh, locals also called it Joshua's altar. So the place they believe Joshua made an altar up on that part of the hill. Um, which is in Joshua 8 when they build this structure. So the archaeology definitely matches on this one. I think that's kind of cool. Uh, and then here's the sad part. As of last month, February 2021, the Palestinians, because this is in the West Bank, started to go up on Ebel and take the rocks off the top of the mountain and grinding them into gravel and making roads out of them. So right now that's the battle with UNESCO is they're trying to stop the Palestinians from grinding up Joshua's altar on top of this hill because they don't want it destroyed. Um, so just an odd little thing if you follow the news and archaeology news. Uh, that's happening as of right now. So Ebel, under the law, is taken by the northern kingdom. Uh, then it's taken by the Assyrians. Then it gets taken by the Samaritans. And now it's getting ground up by the Palestinians. Ebel's life has sucked. It has just been one of those spots where they've just always been at the bad end of history. And this is where all these curses are going to be. So they've had a tough go of it. It's just been cursed. And the law is cursed. Galatians 3.10. For as many are the works of the law under the curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law and do them. So to not do the law is a curse, and that's kind of why the law goes on evil. All right? So this is the cool part. The tribes get divided into these two groups. Lots of people have tried to figure out what's up with these groups. There's only two possible patterns. One, poss one pattern is, this is roughly a 50-50 division. If you look at all the numbers counts from the book of Numbers, this is roughly dividing the people into Israel into two equal teams. So that's one interpretation is it's just a 50-50 split of humanity going on there. Um, and then in 1992, Breuder and Stevens came up with a mathematical compilation of the 462 possible divisions this one is the most equal numerically of all the possible divisions of the people so they support that argument uh, there's another one that's really simple all of the tribes that are on gerizim are the tribes that are the children of the free women that were married into the family so remember there's four different wives that are the tribes of judah the two free wives are on Gerizim. All the tribes that were the children of the slave wives or the servants that were put in to make kids, they're on Ebal. So that's another, people are thinking maybe that has something to do with it. The Bible doesn't talk about it, so you can come up with your own theory on it. Ebal goes first, the law goes first, the curses go first. So some call and response practice is going to happen here. This is a big giant engagement that's going to happen. Verse 14, the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, and I'm assuming that the men and women are there too, and they're going to yell out 12 curses. And there's going to be 12 blessings too. 
And the 12 is a number we need to consider. There's 12 gates in the holy city. There's 12 angels, 12 uh, tribes, 12 wells at Eben, 12 offerings in number 17. There's 12 disciples of Jesus. There's 12 baskets left over of the loaves and fishes. 12 pops up whenever there's a system of government put in place. So there's 12 curses and there's a system of government being put into place. Uh, in Revelations 21, when you look at the holy city of God, there will be a new government put in place. And that interestingly, and I'm way off track here, but I got geeky this week on this. There are 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 tribes carved into the stone, 12 foundations, 12 apostles carved into those, 12 furlogs long, which is 12 by 12 or 140 cubits, which are also 12 feet high with 12 different types of gem to decorate them, 12 pearls over each of the gate, 12 fruits carved into each one of those, or, or 12 fruits that come from the tree of life. So at the end of days, there is a city that is perfectly governed with 12 different elements, all of the number 12, because there's 12 different descriptors of the city of God. So the importance to the number 12 is not to be completely overlooked. That said, there's 12 curses that you're going to get. So there's going to be this piece that comes here. Consider also the impact of this process. Picture yourself on Mount Gerizim or Mount Ebal, and half the people are on Gerizim, and half the people are over there on Ebal, and you're going to shout so loud they can hear you. Have you ever been in a gymnasium at a high school game, and all the freshmen yell out, and then all the sophomores yell out, and then all the... And the idea is the seniors know this game, so they're clearly the loudest every time. This is that kind of thing, only I'm going to yell from this mountain, and I'm going to yell so loud that they can hear us across the valley on the other side. The impact of this as a kid going to this event would have been phenomenal. This would have stuck in your brain for a long time. This is a really cool event. The, later on in Joshua, we find out the Levites bring the Ark of the Covenant to sit right in between at the valley underneath between these two mountains. So you'd be yelling over the Ark of the Covenant as you did these things. Also consider this as we go through the curses, and we'll move pretty quick through the curses. Consider that at the end of every one, they say the word amen, which is not a sexist term. It is. It means so be it is what that word means. So be it. Yes, we agree. So when they yell out amen, they're saying we agree with what just got said. And in that, they're signing the covenant with God. So they're signing on to each of these curses. Amen, I agree with that. I will be cursed if I do that stuff. So imagine that as they shout out amen with each one of these, that that's what's going to happen. I thought maybe we could be shouting amen, maybe with the blessings. I don't know if you want to do that with the curses tonight. But if you read the word of God and you agree with it, you shouldn't have a problem with these curses. You should be, yep, I agree. If that happens, whoever does that should be cursed. So 15 is the first one. Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. There's no idolatry, first and second commandment. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. That was weak, freshman. <laughs> Verse 16. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. Uh, this is the opposite of honoring your parents, the fifth commandment. God ordains it. Uh, and all the people say, Amen. That was better. We're on to sophomores. Cursed is the one who moves. Can you see what this would build for them? Like they're getting into it all of a sudden and they're like, amen, and they're shouting it out. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, which would be stealing. And all the people said, amen. Cursed is, I heard you on that one, honey. 
Cursed is the one who makes the blind wander off the road, which, why, who would do that? And all the people say, Amen. Um, rabbinic tradition says anybody who misleads another person, that's the curse they're talking about there. But maybe it rhymed in the Hebrew or something. I don't know. Cursed is the one, verse 19, cursed is the one who perverts justice due to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he's uncovered his father's bed. No incest in this country. And all the people say, Amen. All right. You don't yell amen on this one. I'm worried. <laughs> cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother, um, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law. Basically, the last few of these are all having to do with sexual impropriety. Keep it just in the marriage bed, and keep it between you and your husband and spouse, or just abstain. One of those things. So all four of those have to do with sexual relations. Um, Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly. All the people say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. And all the people say, Amen. Cursed is the one who does not conform all the words of this law by observing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. I gotcha. You ever do Simon Says? And then they do the thing and then they're like, Simon Says do this, Simon Says do this, do this. And you're like, just doing it out of impact. So they're getting all excited and revved up. And you get to that last one. Wait a sec. What did you just say amen to? The whole of the law, you just said amen. Easy to say amen to don't have sex with animals. We're like, yeah, that's gross. Don't do that. Don't have sex with your mother-in-law. Blah, blah, blah. And it's all these little things. And they get to that last one and all the words of the law. Amen. And everybody shouts it out and say, wait, what did I just? Wait a second. But you just signed the contract, right? And I don't think it's trickery. I'm having fun with that. But it is this idea that you got everybody going and everybody's shouting it louder and louder and louder. And the loudest one would be verse 26, that last one. Gotcha. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is in the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. There shall not muzzle the ox when you treaded it out. You just signed on for all these things. When we labor in our life, the curse of the law is sin and death. But there's still hope. The ox doesn't get muzzled. And we labor in life because we know there's hope. And the hope is these blessings that are coming too. So just this thought about while we're under the law, we know all these curses are coming our way because we just signed on to anyone who doesn't confirm all the walls, words of the law by observing them. Anyone who doesn't do what it says, you're cursed too. And you just said amen because everybody around you is saying amen. Guilt has a source. The only reason we feel guilty is because we did something we shouldn't do. And the only reason shouldn't is there is because God says it's a shouldn't. That's the only justification. Otherwise, do whatever you want, however you want to do it. Go Nietzsche on it, right? Guilt comes from the law, and it's the source of it. And if you do sin in your life or you sell out to it, you get a curse and then you get total bondage to guilt. That's the curse. You're in bondage to, to your own conscience and it will destroy you over the course of your life. But guilt has a remedy too. And that's what's coming up. 
if there's repentance and faith or a, a, atonement for sin and redemption and forgiveness of that sin, then you get total freedom from guilt. And that's the two sides of the mountains. That's Gerizim and Ebal. You're either in bondage to that guilt and sin or you're completely freed from it. But the guilt is the driving decider of what goes on there. I'm going to close with, uh, oh, I still got, I'm not going to close. I got two thoughts left and then we'll wrap up. Galatians 3.10. For as many are the works of the law are under the curse, what we just read. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continues not in the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. We can't live assuming that we're right under the law because we know we're not. So you have to live in faith. You have to be the ox that's not muzzled, right? You have to have hope. And the law is not faith, but the man who does them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Abraham's first altar was on Gerizim. That's the promise of blessing that we're looking forward to. The whole thing's interwoven into the Jewish tradition. And Ebal is the mountain of the curses. And the curse comes under the law. See how Paul just understood this? Because he was a scholar in this stuff. He absolutely knew what he was talking about when he wrote Galatians. And he was referencing these laws. You're under the curse, but there's this blessing of Abraham that we're living for. This priesthood of Melchizedek. This other way to get to God that Abraham had because Abraham wasn't under the law. He was under faith. So we live by faith, not under the law, but law gives us guilt so that we know we need to have the hope. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of the law by observing them. Or more succinctly in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come under the... And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Last couple pieces here. When it says cursed is the one who does not confirm, that's an interesting English word to use. So when you look that one up in the Hebrew, the word is kum. It means to rise or to stand up. Look at that translation. I don't know if you have confirm in yours. To be fixed or established on something, to arise and abide is the word kum. It's to stand on something. Like I'm going to stand on the promises of God. I'm going to rise up in that promise and I'm going to stand on it. That's what the word, I think that the word confirm just doesn't quite do it for me. But if I'm going to acknowledge what God says and I'm going to rise to it, that means something's happening that's positive. And then the word observe, I'm going to not confirm all the words of this law. If I don't rise in the words of this law by observing them, the primitive root there is being used for observe, asa in the Hebrew which is to make or to produce with all of your senses, to observe something. So I'm going to observe the law by keeping it with everything that I have. It's a primitive root, which means in all senses, to do, to make, to fashion my life around the law is what I'm going to do. So I stand with God and I do what he says, weaved right into that passage. And then amen, truly stated, is an adverb for so be it. So verily or so be it, it's a truly stated thing. It's a passage that we all say when we do these. So are we standing on the word of God? 
Are we saying that it's a truly stated thing by saying amen to the word of God? And we're standing with him publicly as a body shouting out amen from the hilltops. These are the people of God saying, I love God's law and I'm going to live my life on it and I stand on it and I want everyone to know that about me, that that's what defines me. Nehemiah 8.6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So you're cursed if you don't do it. What happens if you do the law and what are the blessings that come with it, which is where we're going to be next week? The curses just beg the question, what's coming that's going to be so great? What's the hope that we're supposed to live in? And so next week is going to be a time for hope, where this is the week of of curses, and you just all agreed to the curses on your own life, and you all just said amen. Maybe there's somebody who skipped it, but you all just bought into it. So what is the truly stated words that you're going to agree to when it comes to blessings? What are the blessings you're going to accept with that? And I think that takes us, we'll spend one week in shame and guilt. And then next week we'll move forward in redemption and joy and and have a barbecue and uh, that sort of thing. Amen? Amen. So be it. Jesus, we love you and we want to stand in your word. We want to rise in your law. We want to put it on a hilltop where everyone can see it. We want to shout it from the mountaintops, Lord, that amen, your word is truly stated. It is good and true and holy and we lift it up before all men and women. And Lord, we want to just be those people. We want to be people that when people are walking through the trade routes into our life, that that's the first thing they see is that we're people of the book. And we follow your word because you said it and because you are God. We follow your word, not just for the blessings, Lord, but so that we can bless others. Um, Help us to just have hearts, Lord, that are continually refined for the service of your kingdom, that we love your word, we're in it, we want to study it. Lord, help us to be shaping our lives in such a way, Lord, that we can stand before you and um, that you can know our heart, Lord, that we can uh, trust that you will advocate for us as we've fallen short of your glory in so many ways. But Lord, help our hearts to just be continually pining for you and falling in love with you. Thank you for making Israel your bride. Thank you through Jesus Christ of reclaiming us as your bride and bringing us into your kingdom. Or do we just celebrate with the Jewish people uh, the worship and the rejoicing that they could take on when they see your law as good and holy? Uh, Lord, we pray for each person in this room. May your Holy Spirit go with them this week. May you bless them, uh, even though they just agreed to all the curses. Um, Lord, we just pray that you, you work in our lives in such a way that we can see your hand teaching us, changing us, and making us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.